make a deal with Netflix and you don't have money that comes into you forever. You get paid and then money 20% more or 30% more, but you that's it. It didn't come natural to me. There's so many things that I think about now I wish I had known when I was younger. What I believe resonates with people who are particularly now is content that has some sort of meaning to it. It's more than just pure entertainment. And so suddenly MTV was the only thing it seemed in the whole world and all of Hollywood and everybody else was taking their cues from this startup. I did not know a single writer when I became a writer. I think if you're trying to become a writer from someplace other than Los Angeles and New York, I still think that's really difficult. Welcome to Entertainment Business Wisdom with your host, Kaya Alexander. Oh, hi, and welcome. I'm Kaya Alexander, host of the Entertainment Business Wisdom podcast. Really stoked that you're here with us today. You're here with me and my special guest, Chad Darnell. Let me tell you about him. He is a casting director, actor, writer, producer, and director, all the multi-hyphenates. As a casting director, he has cast local talent in the Southeast on projects like Magic, Mike, XXL, Selma, Florida Girls, Lizzie, Kellerman, Living the Dream, Crime Story, and Beast of Burden. He most recently finished the films One Fast Move, The Stenographer, and The Other Zoe. His film, The Undertaker's Wife, with Shannon Sossamon and John Brotherton, will premiere fall 2022, and he will direct his screenplay, The Intelligent, this summer in Los Angeles. As an actor, he most recently appeared on stage in Atlanta, where he lives as Hedwig and Hedwig and the Angry Inch, and as David Oselznick in Moonlight and Magnolias, and as Dan in Closer in Atlanta, January 22. He lives in Atlanta, and he recently finished his first novel, Buying the Farm. Hey, Chad, and welcome. Hello. Thanks. Yeah, I'm so stoked that you're here. Yeah, exactly. You're with us. You know, yeah. you have been in show business for a while now, and I would love to find out from you how you got interested in show business, how you got started. Where did where did you fall in love? I started as a little kid actor. I was a camel in the church uh, musical. I think I was like six. And then uh, I had a really great, the, the person who was in charge of the choir, him and his wife, Don and Teresa Gross, uh, they really inspired me. Like they, he was an opera singer. Uh, we went to go see, uh, Hansel and Gretel, the opera, uh, at what used to be the Phoenix opera company here in Atlanta. And that was it. Like I, I, uh, f- they, we saw it on the last day of the show. So they were closing, so they were tearing down the set. And of course we, as a group, we were going to get on the bus. And as they were taking, the bus was parked in the back. And as they were taking it down, a flat fell. And when it fell, it just, you know, it suddenly, if you, if you know flats, they glide when they hit the ground. And I thought that was the coolest thing I'd ever seen because it looked like a magic castle and instead it was just a piece of fabric. And that was that was when I was like, I, this is what I want to do. Wow, so, you okay. so early. Yeah, yeah, totally. And then my parents, God bless them, they, they put me through classes and I wanted, there, there was a theater, a local theater in town called the Dorval Arts Theater and I wanted to start immediately, but they put me in classes and, uh, and then it was what we would do at the theater is we would do a, a fall and a spring sort of musical review. And then occasionally we would travel to schools and perform as well. 
But um, they got me into classes first. And then after my first series of classes, the, the director, Jim Ray James, he was like, no, we're putting him into the fall show. So I did that all through elementary and middle school. When I got into high school, it was we were doing plays every six weeks. So I, that was more exciting. And, and I was doing drama instead of just doing musicals all the time. And then, you know, just from there, I kept going. And I fell into casting completely by accident because I graduated from high school and a whole other very long podcast would be how the ACT screwed up my scores. And so instead of it being an 81, it was reported as an 18. And at 91, it was a 19. So I looked like I was brain dead. Oh, and my God. Georgia State was like, yeah, we, we will accept you. And under the guys, you have to spend the first year in remedial classes. I'm like, but I was in advanced placement all through high school. Like, why? This is Georgia State. And oh, so that was when it was revealed. And so, But had I not gone to Georgia State, I would not have been in the opportunities to work as an extra on In the Heat of the Night and I'll Fly Away, which shot here in town. And so I kind of, I don't know how I got through college. I, because I was working all the time as a stand-in. Uh, and then I eventually working as a casting assistant where I would like be up checking in extras at five o'clock in the morning and I would be at class by 1030. Uh, but I don't know how I studied. I, I would love to go back and just like observe from afar, like how I got through college because I don't, it, it was so fast, you know, <laughs> so fast. I still have nightmares that I, I almost failed geology. And that would have been my fourth D. I mean, I wasn't a great student, but, uh, you know, that would have been my fourth, which meant that I wouldn't have graduated. I still, and that was my last quarter, senior year. And I, by a 10th of a point did I pass. And oh my goodness, but you, know, uh, you loved, it sounds like you just had your, your sense of yourself so young. I feel like that's rare. I know I sure didn't, even as a writer, I was always writing, but I didn't have this idea of like, Oh, this is what I want to do, you know? Well, and I just wanted to work in film. It's like I, my old, we had a high school uh, newspaper that came out our, our senior year, like where we see ourselves in five and 10 years. And I just said, be specific <laughs> because I just said, I want to work in film. Well, I did, but I was in casting and <laughs> casting wasn't even a, that wasn't even on the radar of things that I wanted to do in high school. But, but let's was, talk a little bit about being in casting because I imagine yeah. you actually, it put you in a position in the industry. You must have learned so much that also informed your career as a multi-hyphenate. So tell us about that. I, completely. Like I started off as a, when I, I, by mistake, they called me in on a day that I wasn't supposed to be there to stand in. So they sent me to the casting office to make phone calls. So I started off doing the grunt work of like calls and fi back when we had headshots and you would file them away in files. And and so I started doing that, but then that positioned me as, you know, I became point person on a show. And then you, you learn, you're working with costumes, you're working with the director, you're working with the first ADs. And then you get into these production meetings where you're hearing all sides of the budget, how things are going to be done, the shots, cutting things down on a day, you know where things are going to be parked. So it really informed my sense of producing. And more so when I went to work for Central Casting in Los Angeles in 2000, I moved to LA in 2000. I was on all of these shows, alias Crossing Jordan, Judging Amy, Cold Case, all very different genres. And they allowed me the opportunity to, to observe all of these amazing writers and producers. And also every show that I worked on, these were big shows. They were so welcoming to me because they knew that I, extras casting wasn't my end game. Everyone, Paris Barclay and Damon Lindelof and J.J. Abrams, everyone knew that, that I, was, I wanted to write. And so those opportunities really shaped who I am today.
we're, we, we are a product of, of all of our experiences and I've had really great experiences. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So you, you're acting, you're working and casting and did you have that love of writing in you? Were you curious about it? Like you were obviously reading scripts Were you just thinking, Oh, I could do this better than what's uh, Yeah, no, always. <laughs> it was funny I started off in journalism in high school. And so there was a newspaper in Atlanta called Purple Cow. And then I also wrote as like a junior writer uh, for the Atlanta Journal, like occasionally, like once a month, I would have like a little column. And that was where I thought I was going to head. Like journalism was my backup. And, uh, and instead, I just was working all through college and in, in film, working as a double and a st- uh, photo, photo double and a stunt double and, and casting. Like I was working in all facets of, of production. But with the writing, I was I would write like these horrible little little like like fan fiction scripts about a nightmare on Elm Street, like you know, killing off all my friends. And they all loved, you know, I'd print them out on a dot matrix printer and oh my god, everybody would read them. But it wasn't until I got into college I studied screenwriting and Jack Boozer, who was my professor, I mean, he he shaped the technique and the the logistics of what screenwriting is and really broke it down for me. And I'm grateful for that aspect of college uh, that I that I learned, and then also all these years working on film and TV. It, it, yeah, there were definitely some times where I'd be like sitting in a in a tone meeting or sitting in a production meeting, it's like, really, this is, or, or I would pick apart like the plot points that like no one seemed to find. And, you know, I just like shuffle that as a note to a director, and they'd be like, wait, if they found the body this way, you know, that, that kind of thing. So. Um, <laughs> But also on Crossing Jordan, I was the one crew member who was on the show from the pilot all the way to the last episode. For the first five seasons, I was the extras casting director. And then the final season, I was the showrunner's assistant. So basically, I was the go-between between between the cast and the producers and the producers and the crew. You know, it's it's kind of like that scene in in A Midsummer Night's Dream where it's like the wall. You know, people go through to get get the information. (laughs) Nobody got through without getting through me. Nobody got out. And so... uh, but it was a great experience as a producer, and I had great showrunners. So uh, you were like the, you were probably the human show bible at that point. Like you, exactly. the entire gestalt of the show better than anyone else who was on. And what was crazy is that writers don't go back to watch all of the episodes of a show. So I would get brought in, like they would be pitching the episode, and be like, "Yeah, that was episode three hundred two. Like I, uh-huh. yeah, I, I knew uh-huh. all of the episodes, and I was also a fan of the show. So it's like they would bring up points about Jill Hennessy's characters father i'd be like, no that's not that's not true because in episode one so that was a very i was a very resourceful part of the show but also it was just great being involved in that part of the storytelling that's so, so cool made me a better producer yeah right okay so how did that inform your producing what like what were you internalizing at that point about how to how to produce how to be a better producer well the great like we had the showrunners themselves, John Cowan, Robert Rotner, Kathy McCormick, they were all lovely human beings and they, they treated everyone with respect. And then we had other producers on the show that were very logistical. Like it was sometimes they were a little gruff and then, you know, but they, they towed the line when it came to having to move the ship. And then Skip Bodine and Bruce Carter, who were our line producers and production managers, they just, they taught me so much about listening to a crew. And that was what was great about the last season of the show because everybody knew me. So if there was ever an issue that they wanted to get relayed to the big house, you know, where, where the production office was, sure. then everybody came to me. And I feel like now, even on my projects, it's like because I have that understanding and you want to make sure that everybody's having a good time because if they're not having a good time, then why are you involved in the project? Um, 
I always try to keep a very happy set. I am with you there. That that tone just matters so much. You know, when people feel good, they feel better about their work and then the quality of the work is better. Absolutely. Yeah. And they also feel like that they are part of the show and that they, you know, I always have an open door policy. Like if you have an idea, bring it to me. I'll steal your idea. I'll give you credit for it. But you know, it's like, I will absolutely take your ideas. And yeah. Let's use the best ideas. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So you didn't though, then want to just say, Hey, I'm, I'm going to be a showrunner. Because you're you're writing, you're producing, you're directing, but the passion didn't take you to show running. It well, it was uh, at that time in LA. So when, when the show was canceled, when Crossing Jordan was canceled, I had a screenplay that I had written while I was on the show the last season. I had a manager who didn't really didn't know what she was doing, and we'll all get to find those people in our lives. <laughs> we all get to the producers who think they're producers and they're not. Um, but this. Script. Thank God. Back in the day, there were these things called the tracking boards. So mm-hmm. like development assistants and agents assistants would like talk about these projects. And I don't know who this woman was, but she said, whatever you do, don't read the telling at night. I haven't slept in two nights. The next day, there was a hundred plus requests for the script from my manager. And then suddenly everybody, it kind of like took on a life of its own because people were posting on the board about how they were afraid to sleep. So it kind of like took on this sort of mystique uh, amongst, and then, so I get called in for, you know, for, uh, meetings because it was kind of, it was a horror movie. It was sort of based in spiritual truth. And, uh, and even people that were atheists, like there was a line, like, just because you don't believe in something doesn't mean it doesn't exist. And which is also a line and I keep stealing from my old projects. And so that was the thing that scared a lot of people. And, or they would be reading the script in bed and, you know, next to their loved one. And then they'd look up and see something across the room and scream and, so it kind of took on this like fun storyline that all these people were afraid of reading the script, but then nothing happens. Like I, I, I needed an agent to close the deal, close yes. the door. It builds heat. And then if, if the heat is gone, it's on to the next one. Right. And over the years, that script has been optioned five times. Oh my God. This was before the whole like possession craze. And so, you know, now it would need a page one rewrite to make it a, a 2023 horror movie. Uh, it's not the same, you know, that no one would be interested in seeing that story now because the, the level of possession movies have changed and evolved over time. Uh, but at the time it was a really good one. And so, um, that sort of, I was doing that for a year. And then I, I worked as a line producer on a cancer documentary and then I got cancer, which was a whole other weird story. And then I <laughs> was like, I was like, did I catch it? <laughs> like, uh, but I, I, it was a cancer, a, a breast cancer documentary. And then I ended up getting testicular cancer. So I was dealing with that. And then uh, I was working, uh, I worked in a hotel because of the whole, like having to go through chemo and, and not being able to like, you know, we do what we have to do to make a living. And so I was a night manager at a boutique hotel in Manhattan Beach, which will become a movie one day. Which was like, oh, like, I bet. Oh my God. Uh, the stories that I have. And, uh, so then I ended up working for an actress and it started off and she was a friend of mine. We went to church together in LA and then you said air quotes, friend yeah, of mine. Air quotes. she was a friend, she was a friend <laughs> and then she wasn't. And, uh, um, but she, you know, it was, I, I, I have learned over time and it's, I am an actor, but it's like, I've learned over time that actors sometimes will turn on you. And it's, it, it's because of their insecurity. It's because when you, you try to talk sense into them 
and I know this is a casting director as well, when you try to <laughs> explain things to an actor, sometimes they don't take that note. And so this was, that was predominantly what my relationship was with this individual. And I left, and it, but at that time, when I was working with her the last couple of years, I had worked on a short film called Grimm's Cake, which did really well on the festival circuit. We did uh, a web series called Project Phoenix. And then I did a, 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 a feature film sequel to the short film called Birthday Cake. And, uh, and then that, did, that played the festival circuit. But at the end of my ride with the actress, because we went to church together, because of a lot of our friends were intertwined, I was like, I can't be here anymore. And, and it was that weird thing of like, who do you think they're going to be friends with? The television star or the assistant who's been ousted? And right. so, you know, I came back to Atlanta at that point and Atlanta was just beginning to boom in 2013. Like we had two TV series <laughs> and, and a big film. And so, uh, and then there were two films. And um, so I, I started working in casting. That was when I did Selma and, and then Magic Mike XXL. And yeah, interesting. Um, so, and then that was, you know, for the next few years, uh, I was kind of floating all over. There was, there was a year and a half where my accountant was like, you were basically just working to pay rent because I had a, a house in Atlanta and Savannah and Richmond and I was paying rent in Birmingham. So I was like working all over the place, making terrible deals for myself because I was having to, I needed the credit on these projects. Sure. So, you know, I work as a local. And then eventually when I was doing well, I moved to Savannah. The Savannah Economic, Economic Development Authority wanted me to come to Savannah and help grow the market there, which I did. I did my time and we, we now have a very thriving market in Savannah. I taught actors. I, I started a thing called Basecamp Savannah where I taught acting and as well as bringing in teachers from Atlanta to do workshops. And, and now we have a thriving market in, in Savannah. But when my time was done there, I was like, I was ready to come back to Atlanta. I wanted to do more acting, but I couldn't focus on that while I was living in between two cities. And so now I'm here and I'm, 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 I'm doing principal casting. It, and over the past past two and a half years have sucked because of COVID. Yes. We finished my film, Unpicker's Wife, right a week before there was a breath of like, there's this thing called coronavirus. Oh and, then, God. and then I was set like to- you finished, Like you finished post? Oh, it's completely done. Oh God. The yeah. other thing. Then yeah. March, 2020? Yeah. And then we, we, well, no, we finished shooting. And then I had to do post-production remotely, which was a nightmare uh, to do. Uh, you know, when you're in Atlanta and he's in LA. Your editor was in LA? Yeah. And so he would like send me like little clips at a time. Uh, and that there's, that's not the way to watch a movie. <laughs> like when you're like, go back and like, I'm sending like 20 pages of notes after each session. And so, um, but we eventually got it done. And then it's, it's supposedly coming out later this fall. It, there was a whole issue with the rights of the film and the investor and the producer, but uh, it seems like everything's finally been resolved. And, you know, I just, my, my little film got held hostage in, in the midst of all of, you know, in business, it happens. It happens. Oh, we were excited for you to, to, for it to come out. Tell us about it. So uh, I wrote, the, I saw a movie, a horror movie, which were main nameless. And I, I'm, I'm, you know, because of the telling and these other projects that I've worked on, I know that horror sells. Mm -hmm. It's not my favorite genre, but I know that it, it sells. And I have a couple of other scripts that have nothing to do with horror that I'm much more passionate about. Uh, but the horror stuff is what sells. And so I had a movie. Um, so, sorry. So I went to see a horror movie. Didn't like it. I, didn't, I was like, this is not scary. But like everybody in the world was going on about how this was the scariest movie they'd ever seen. And to me, 
really terrifying horrors like Psycho, like those those movies, the Hitchcock movies, and where it could happen. It's not necessarily right. a slasher. It's not necessarily some boogeyman. It's like these things could happen. And so Shannon Sossaman and John Brotherton play uh, a married couple who are going through some issues, and they move into an historic funeral home in the South, deep South. It's been in the family generations for years. And uh, they, the night they move in, some, somebody knocks on the door and wants to plan the funeral for his brother who was involved in a drunk driving accident earlier that day. Their personal family issues come from the fact that they had lost a son in a drunk driving accident. So they want nothing to do with this guy. He pulls a gun on Shannon. Uh, a fight ensues. John Brotherton um, thinks that he's killed him by beating him to death, but he was in prison for years, you know, for manslaughter. So now they have this dead body that's the first night they're in town. So they decide the only way to get rid of him is to embalm him and then get rid of the body. And when she goes to embalm him, he's not dead. So she embalms him alive. And then it goes from there. And so it's like, it becomes this thriller about, is this family going to get away with it? Uh, and then it, they also now have to plan all of the funerals for these children that were involved in drunk driving us. Oh my gosh. Yeah, that does sound truly terrifying. Yeah. So it's, and then on top of all of that, they're not aware of the fact that their house is haunted. Oh, so okay. The audience sees the ghosts, but they, they don't. And, and then there's a big twist at the end. So that you're, you're holding up my, uh, my belief here that horror writers are like the nicest people. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, totally. <laughs> When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But it's, no, it's a psychological. You can just, you know, hang out and be a human being and be awesome. Yeah. <laughs> and then The Intelligent, which is the next film that I'm doing after uh, SLA. Uh again, it's it's a it's a very 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 simple thriller and that takes place again kind of in a haunted house situation, but it's a, a thriller about grief. And so I'm excited to explore that. But we're shooting it that one more so than uh, Undertaker's Wife as, as a, like a Hitchcock film, if, if Hitchcock were in the 20s. Very cool. That sounds yeah. fantastic. You've got a lot of irons in the fire. You've got a lot happening right now. I'm really happy for you. Thanks. Well, and it's funny to have the irons in the fire now because for the past two and a half years, nothing. Right. It's like for, and the intelligent was supposed to go in July of 2020 and it kept getting pushed and pushed and pushed because of COVID. And then last year we couldn't get our actor over from London. So we ended up having to recast him. And then a major studio picked up the film, which was great, but then it pushed us off for a couple of months doing contracts. And then that studio began to implode. And uh, so then and anyone who touched my script was either fired or quit. And, and then we, it just got to the point where it's like, all right, well, we're going to make this independently. But then the studio didn't want to give it up. So it's, again, it's like, it's just been this thing of like, I just want to make the movie. Like, I don't care about the business part of it, but that's why you have a producer who will. But I, it's just been fr so frustrating because I've been turning down work. I was turning down acting gigs because I had to turn down an opportunity on Queer's Folk for Peacock because, oh, no, I'm going to be shooting in December. And then I wasn't. And then I turned down this opportunity. And so, yeah, the past two and a half years, I'm going to L.A. in a week. And I'll be out there 
indefinitely, uh, working on SLA and then hopefully my film. But I, I, I think I had so much PTSD of the fact that for the past almost two years, I sat in a house in LA not doing it. Oh just my gosh. everything to go. And so that will not be the case this time around because I'll, you know, fly in Sunday and then hit the ground running Monday with I casting. Hear That's so great. You know, as somebody who's per- persevered in this business, as long as you have, what advice do you have to those who are, you know, getting into the business, who are struggling through the lower rungs of the business? Um, I will, I will give this up to my, uh, my, my beloved talent agent, Jason Lockhart. He calls it the three piece. And the funny thing, a, a few weeks ago, because I, as an actor, like it's frustrating because I, as I was telling you earlier, it's frustrating to see actors come in, uh, for roles or uh, go in for roles that I know I could kill, but they have more credits than me. And I, that's never been in, in casting. That's never been a thing that I push out. I've never been the casting director to be like, oh, well, you need to hire this actor because they have 17,000 credits. I'm always trying to hold the door open for a new actor who needs those credits and showing the, if, if the director really loves this actor, give them that opportunity. Love that. And it's different though, when you're a casting director and also an actor, because sometimes casting, there are certain casting directors in my, my area of the woods that absolutely will never read me or they'll read me to dance monkey dance. Like, Oh, you want to be an actor casting director? Let's play this audition for this role. And, uh, after months and months and months of auditioning and not booking anything, I called my agent and I said, I'm done. I'm through. I'm out. Like, I don't want to do this anymore. I'm, I'm, I love acting. I love it more than writing and directing and producing, but I can't keep putting myself through this. The the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again, expecting Mm -hmm. different results. And so I'm like, this is ridiculous what I'm doing to myself. And so I, for 20 minutes, I was like, you know, thank you for all the time that you put into me and invested in me, but I'm done. And he goes, are you done? I'm like, I'm so done. I I'm so done. I don't want to do this anymore. And he says, famous last words. Yeah. And he said, have you read my book before? And I, I mean, he has a book out called ask an agent. And I said, of course I've read your book. And he goes, what are the three P's? So the deal is the three P's are patient, positivity, and persistence. And that's what you have to have. And I said, Jason, I hear you, but I'm all out of all three. Like I'm done. Like I just, I'm out of positivity. I'm out of persistence. And I'm out. And uh, he's like, I promise you, you're getting closer. We kind of changed the game up a little bit. And then right before we hopped on here, I booked a role. And so it's, that's what it really is about. I mean, you do have to be persistent. You do have to be positive and you do have to be patient, but it's so frustrating. And it, it's frustrating to hear, uh, but you just have to. And again, I think work begets work as well. Absolutely. Because I was so frustrated with uh, buying the farm, which we can talk about that later. But it's yeah. like, I finally decided to like, instead of waiting on producers to, um, to sell the series, I'm going to write this as a book. And so I did. And then I, again, like I kept pushing it out to literary agents and, um, and no, one was, no one was even getting past the query letter. And... So I was like, screw it. I was standing in my kitchen and I was like, I'm going to self-publish this. And I've, you know, it's when you self-publish, all the money is yours. You control everything. And so I'm, I'm on my way to be making more money on this book than if I had sold it to a small house and have no control over it. And it could have been two or three years before the book ever comes out. Right. Missions to an agent and everything. And so it's, I think you really have to be patient, but you also work that gets work. 
Did you and do that strategically because you wanted the IP to be able to adapt it? I did. Yeah. Well, yes. Yeah. <laughs> so there we'll talk about it. So uh, Sean Hayes uh, from Will and Grace and his business partner, Todd Milliner, they have Hazy Mills, which is a production company. And for 15 years, they've been taking the show out. And originally I went in to pitch one show. And then as I was leaving the room, Sean gave me his email address. And he's like, you know, if you ever have another project, like pitch it to me. He loved, Sean loved my original script that I went in with. Todd didn't like it because it was um, a serialized show. So each week was a different cliffhanger. Uh, and at the time, you know, this was just after Alias. So people were kind of over the, the serialized cliffhanger stuff. They wanted episodic where you can just drop in week after week. Yep. Um, you know, and pick up the story at any point. And Mercy, which was the show that I pitched, was definitely episodic. There was no way, it was definitely serialized. There was no way it could be told episodically and, and make sense and be fine. And so I got to the door and I turned around and I remember hearing somebody say that they had pitched a show and they got to the door and, you know, the same situation. It's like, well, tell us if you have another idea. And the guy got to the door and he, he turned around and he said, uh, footloose on roller skates. Like he just pulled two ideas together and then he ended up selling that as a show. And so I got to the door and I just like, quick, two shows, just do it now. And I went, Dexter meets the Golden Girls. And uh, like, like two random shows that have absolutely nothing to do with Which is them. always what the execs love, especially too. Exactly. And so Sean like kind of curled up and just started laughing and like fell off the couch laughing. <laughs> and, and Todd just, he just like pointed at me and then pointed at the couch and, was, and he just goes, sit. And so I, I sat back down and as I'm walking to the couch, I was like, Sorry, Siri thinks I'm talking. Um, I said, uh, you know, as I'm walking to the couch, I was like, oh, quick, quick, come up with a story. And so I sat down, and my <laughs> mind was To get to the story, to get to the sofa. Oh my God. Yeah. So I sat down and, and, and Sean's still laughing and he's like, oh my God, Golden Girls is my favorite show. And so Todd just said, so you were sitting on that the entire time? I went, I was sitting on that the entire time. And he's like, so what's the show? It's like, it's about uh, four women who sell dead body parts in the black. And I was thinking to sell dead body parts on the black market because that was a pitch of a show that I was going to pitch as my, if we'd gone one more season of Crossing Jordan, I would have been a staff writer. Yes. So the selling of dead body parts was my story that I, I said four women who sell dead body parts on the black market. And I think the Dexter angle was just like the crazy, like chopping up stuff. And Sure. And so Todd's like, and so you have a one pager on this. I said, I can tomorrow. Yes. And so, <laughs> so a month later, I went back in and pitched it again. And immediately, like, we started taking it out. Our, we, we had a date on the calendar. And that was the day the writer strike started in 2008. So oh, yeah. we, 100 days later, you know, we went back out. And, and then we pitched it all during that time. But all of the networks were like, oh, we're not looking for anything, any shows with women. We're not definitely not. Oh, I remember women. those years. Yeah. We don't want any shows with women. I remember, oh, he's like bane of my existence. I was out with a, uh, with, with one of my adaptations at the same time. And it was like, you have a female lead. We, we no, no. <laughs> we yeah, need the show two men about to four be women the... who sell that body parts of the black market. Oh my and God. Well, can the okay, sheriff be a bigger character? The success of the Golden Girls too. You would think that you know it's like, hi, this is our. We've already we've already opened these doors, but no, finding women like all of these movies, these huge yeah, shows, like, women, absolutely, hundred percent. So yeah, no, no women, no shows that have older, definitely nothing with older women. And um, you know, if we if you're going to do women, they need to be in their twenties and they need to be hot. 
and uh, and definitely nothing that takes place in the South. That was a big thing. Oh like when I first started pitching, that I was, was like, back in those years where like actual when I was a development exec and, and fuckability was a real conversation that was happening. Oh yeah, businesses, and it was like you know like. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it used to drive me crazy. I got shut down a lot trying to speak up about it too. I mean, it was like, and that was just the norm. They would yep, use the, it was the norm back then. Yeah. So, you know, it, true blood. I mean, the, the first couple of pitches, it was like, it's like true blood. It takes place in the South. And we were literally on the Warner brothers lot where they shot true blood. I mean, they didn't even shoot it in the South. And so we closed it up. And, and at the end, the last place we went was Fox, which it was 20 somethings in Chicago. I mean, it was just, it didn't make, it was not a fun, like, this is not the show. No. And so five years later, we took it back to Bravo because they were looking for original content. And again, it was like, yeah, I know, women, that's not really our thing. Lord. Real Housewives. And so um, so now it's like everyone's looking for shows with women. Everyone's definitely looking for shows with older women. And of course, anything that could shoot the South for a tax credit. So we were set to sell the show March 17th, 2020. Oh, Lord. And then the world shut down. And so then, you know, for the first year of COVID, they weren't looking at any new shows. They were only trying to deal with contracts that they had in place or that they were negotiating. And so August of last year, I was like, I'm just going to write this as a novel because I'll be dead by the time this thing ever sees a contract, a pair, you know, a if come deal. And so uh, I started writing it. And then in March of this year, Todd reached out to me. He's like, hey, so we're thinking... We always called it Body Farm, even though that would never have been the title of it. It was just, that was the, what we called it. Uh, it's been called the, the Bells, the Liberty Bells and uh, Mortified. And now it's called Buying the Farm. Right. Uh, said, we think Body Farm is a feature film. It's like, oh, that's great. Well, actually, I'm writing it as a novel now. And, and they were all excited about it. They're like, oh my God, that's great. Then you'll have the IP and that, that'll make it even, that adds value to it. And so then in May... They read the first draft of it and uh, Sean or Todd, one of them emailed back, oh, this is definitely a limited series. And so now with the limited series, they're, they're looking at taking it out like that. So now that the book is out, it's been out for about a month now on Amazon and Barnes and Noble, buy the farm, get it today. Uh, <laughs> um, it's uh, now that it's out and the reviews are really good. Um, we're, they're trying to position it like they don't need this book to be a huge hit in order to take it in. Of course the fact that they already have the, the story and we are hopefully attaching a really cool top of the line showrunner who has a deal at their studio. And when I heard who it was, I was like, Oh my God. Yes. Per he's perfect. Oh, man. Um, so all of this is supposed to be a, a situation and conversation in about two weeks when I get to LA. So that's exciting. And it, it would, I feel like the thing that we've all said, you know, over the past, even two years ago, when we thought we were going to sell it, it's like the time is now. This mm -hmm. is exactly what they're looking for. And did more you, so now with the book. So, did you write yourself a role in it? No, I didn't. Uh, I didn't. Uh, and it's funny, I've never written, when I, even when I write stuff, I don't write things for me. I've, I've had a couple of things, like, I, well, I did have a film called Installation, which is uh, about, uh, it's a, and we, if we can get the money together, we would shoot at SAG ultra low budget um, in Palm Springs. And it's a, a thriller uh, about a, a relationship that goes bad. And, um, uh, but no, even with Intelligent, I think, I think also because like with Undertaker's Wife and Intelligent, just being the writer, direct, having that kind of cast everybody, 
it feels a little weird to me to be like, all right, that's my turn uh, for my coverage. It's I, I just I'm happier like staying behind the camera on my own projects. Okay, well that's great. Uh, we're excited for you. Oh my god, you got some great momentum coming out of this horrible Dude. pandemic. Finally, yeah, I know. Finally, hey, that's your patience part, right? Your persistence, yeah, patience. <laughs> yeah, totally. I know it is hard to stay positive in the midst of all that. You know, when it seems like everything could happen and then it doesn't, or there's a big waiting period or a project that just seems dead. Sometimes you can resurrect and come back to life. You know, 10 years later, you're like, this just needs a rewrite to bring it into the moment. And it's suddenly totally relevant. I keep large boneyards of scripts from things from before. And, you know, an entire lift an entire block of ideas out of one script and be like, oh, this is perfect for this one. You know, I don't throw anything away for that reason, because it just is, it, it keeps it so alive. It's like a a more rich fabric, you know, woven together when there's just so much behind it. I feel like I'm also a novelist too. And I I love the adaptations where I'm taking two out actually right now for working on a pilot right now. Um, let's talk about your novel writing. Did you love it? I loved it. And I'm excited. I I just announced today that, uh, on September 24th, right before I go to LA, I'm going to do like a Facebook live, uh, book club. I want to hear what people liked about it, what they didn't like about it, what, what, where they see the story going and make sure, because the great thing about the first book is that no one saw the ending coming. Oh, so so buying the farm is book one. It's book one of three. Yeah. Fantastic. Okay. It's true. It's also, you were talking about the IP. It's like the nice thing about having a successful book is that if it goes to limited series, they can't really change a lot of it. Right. Pissing off the fans. So that's what I'm excited about because so many times your stuff gets bought and they'll rewrite everything. Not to say it doesn't. I mean, we all, we've all seen those limited series where we're like, well, why did they change the ending like that? But, um, with this book, uh, and these were characters that we, you know, we created 15 years ago. We always knew what the end game was. We always knew kind of like what the end of the first season would be, but this is basically like the entire first season in one book. And or the entire first limited series in one book. And um, so now knowing where the characters could possibly go, it's exciting. But there, there's a huge twist as I was writing it. Like, I didn't really know, like, how this was going to end. Like, I, was like, I, I knew that I had to figure out a button for this book as to what happens with these women and, and their business. And as I'm writing it, it just, I, I just did a writer's conference this past weekend with Del Shores. And they say they like let the characters talk and like as as it was typing away, I was like, oh my God, and this is what's gonna happen. And and sure enough, like everybody who's read the book has been like 20 pages away from the ending, 30 pages away from the ending. I'm like, there's no he's painted himself into a corner. There's no way to get out of this. And then the twist happens and and that's what propels the book into the second one. So oh, it's, I love it. I've yeah. got to read it. It sounds fantastic. <laughs> yeah, I'm excited. I'm really happy with it. I'm really, and the fact the reviews have been really good. Been, that's great too. Congratulations. Oh my gosh. I just, I love that. You know, I want to talk to you too about what's happening in the industry. You know, I'm bi and queer. I know you're gay. And I, this is such an interesting time for us in the industry. There's a lot more, it seems like there's a lot more openness and opportunity, but at the same time, maybe a lack of LGBTQ characters on screen. What's your, what are your thoughts about that? I, there's a, my friend, uh, Angelique Mithunder, she posted about this new directive, uh, this morning on her, uh, Instagram page about, uh, being authentic and casting. And it sounded kind of like they were demanding that they cast only authentic a- actors to, to minority groups. 
And the bottom line is, yeah, we want to cast gay actors when possible. We want to cast whatever color of the rainbow you identify with. We want to, we want to authentically open that door so that we have the opportunity to, to provide a role for that person. But in many cases in the Southeast, and depending on the budget of a film, there's just not the talent base. And uh, I, I recently worked on a film in Savannah, which was a, uh, a, a gay action comedy. And uh, I did not have the greatest experiences on this film, uh, but that was because of the producer, one of the producers. And um, because he wasn't listening to me at all. And like, I, I know the market and I know the people that are in the market. I, not just Savannah, and within the 50 mile zone of what we call SAG, because anything outside of 50 has a mileage per diem. You become a very expensive actor at that point. Okay. So I'm not a sorcerer. You're the one who chose to shoot your gay movie in Savannah, Georgia. <laughs> and uh, with 50 characters who are all gay. And so um, I, there's only so much that I can do. You know, and when you want to have a six foot four trans man who's black and missing an arm, I'm not a sorcerer. And so you're going to have to start changing stuff to be realistic. And so not just in Savannah, though, but also in Atlanta, we, there are certain categories of talent that we just don't have. And yes, absolutely, forever, people like myself have, like, because we're a minority, we've always wanted to be open to minorities. You know, not, I don't see color or has never been a line. I mean, we talk about colorblind casting, meaning we want to open this role up to ethnicities. I mean, certain things that we say and, and, and phrases sometimes get misconstrued. Like a, a we've used the word colorblind before, which now is a different meaning, but back in the day, it meant all ethnicities that, or, you know, some of us took it as that, like if it was a doctor, it could be a person of any ethnicity playing that doctor. If right. it was the best or, actor for the role type of uh, or, orientation. Exactly. But also within the Southeast, because a lot of talent who people of color, uh, uh, handicapped, like whatever that specialty group might be, they just weren't getting the opportunities and they need the opportunities to have the credits yes. so that we're building and growing the market, which is all yeah. in my thing. Uh, whether it's Savannah, whether it's Birmingham, whether it's Richmond, whether it's Charlotte, we need to, we need to be casting these talent because we have to grow the market. And, and that only adds value to the market, which eventually adds value to other films that come to town. That's not the producer's problem that they're, you know, adding, but you still, as a casting director, it's always been a push for me to do that. And so, uh, there are certain groups that we just don't have. And back, you know, 2020 Black Lives Matter, when we were really starting to hear a push of like inclusion, uh, it's like. I was happy that we're finally having these conversations that we should have been having for decades. So long. But, but at the same time, like a bunch of white people are like, what can I do? What educate me? Like, what can I do? And my whole thing at the time, and I, it sounded, I know that when I said it, it sounded like I was making a racist statement though. I wasn't, but what I was saying was if you want something white person, pay for a class for a black uh, actor who can't afford classes or an Hispanic, somebody who needs the help, a scholarship of some sort. If you want to raise up the market, and I'm not saying that uh, nobody can afford, you know, people can't afford. I'm not saying that. But like people that were actively like asking what they could do, 
help pay for for classes uh, or find that talent and mentor them because that's what we need. And, and it, like when I cast Selma, we read every black actor within 50 miles of Atlanta, Georgia because and because there had never been a project that big mm. in Atlanta that had cast that many black actors. All the colleges, all the, the acting schools, all of the theater companies. We actively went out, we had open calls. And it's because we wanted to give everyone the opportunity. Um, but if you don't have the training, I can't cast you. And that's the bottom line. And so, so many people are like, why aren't you casting more people of color? Why aren't you casting more gay people? Well, it's not like I'm trying to not cast them. They don't have the training. And this was a big thing in Savannah where, you know, it was a predominantly white group of actors. Uh, there was an article in Project Casting, if you Google it, it made me so mad, um, where uh, a, a reporter was trying to catch me, like a, a, a get gotcha article. Mm. And uh, at the time, this was during a movie called The Do-Over. And this was like a year after Magic Mike. So things were just starting to grow in Savannah. I hadn't started Base Camp Savannah yet. I was teaching on you know weekends every once in a while. But actors, you know, after they had like booked a, a small job on a little film, they thought that they could go toe-to-toe with Channing Tatum or go toe-to-toe with Adam Sandler. And just because a movie is shooting down the street from you doesn't mean that you're an actor. Mm. You have to have the training. And if you don't have on-camera training, I'm not going to cast you. I'm not going to make myself look bad. Right. And trust me, I will bring you in. Your reputation on the line with that person and that choice. I mean, if I'm trying to hold the door open for you, I'm putting my faith and trust that when you get on camera, that you're going to do the damn thing. Right. And so uh, I think more so with my experience with teaching and with the opportunities that I've had, um, I've always been trying to actively like help other actors get those first roles. Whereas a lot of casting directors in Atlanta, I mean, that cast the majority of the projects here in town, they don't need to. They can swing a dead cat in Piedmont Park and hit five actors that are perfectly talented to do the role, depending on what the role is. But back to types, um, LGBT actors, there's not a lot of us here. There's just not. And it's frustrating when like, you see a show like Dynasty that's cast two straight people. It's like, uh, I mean, I know three other actors that could have played that role and it right. could have been authentic. But again, not my monkey, not my zoo. You know, I, you, there's only so much that you can do. And I've always tried to cast authentically. And uh, because when you have an actor who can play that role, who is authentic to it, who does not necessarily always get opportunities to play those roles, we absolutely need to be able to push for them. Mm. And I mean, it's and the thing on this film in Savannah, like we had to cast a number of people who were not of the LGBTQIA plus rainbow just because we have, like, we have to cast these roles, but I don't have the actor who is capable of doing this. And sometimes it was uh, the way that it was, I was like, please, does this have to be 6'5"? Can he be smaller? Can he be a different ethnicity? Can he be something else? And, you know, that's what they wanted. So they had to pay housing mileage and per diem on a weekly contract from Atlanta to bring in an actor who was none of the colors of the rainbow. But again, there's only so much that I can do. I, my job is to present the options and to fight for the actors. But at the end of the day, I, it's not my film. So, yeah, yeah, that, well, I, I mean, I'm thrilled that you care, you know, and that you've put your attention there and your, your conscious effort there, because as you mentioned, not everybody does. I'm excited to see Judd Apatow's new movie, Bros. 
uh, coming out. Doesn't it look good? Did you see the trailer mm-hmm. for it? Yeah, we have a screening next week here in Atlanta. I'm excited oh, to see it. Um, I can't wait. I mean, and, and it's wonderful. You know, he has, I, I've seen him a bunch at the Largo and other places. And he, yeah. the first one to say, I, I'm not a diversity producer. This isn't my thing. But he saw the opportunity in the space and was like, we need a really hilarious gay comedy, queer comedy. Like, and so he was aware of that and looking and was able to put his name behind this movie. Yeah. I hope it's as good as it looks. And I hope that it also helps open more doors, you know, for, for this type of, um, film. I know growing up, I I certainly didn't see anyone like me, uh, on screen, like at all, uh, whatsoever. And I think about it now with what I write, you know, with my new YA novel and stuff. And it's like, I'm definitely writing for my younger self because it would have, I think it would have healed me. I think it would have gave me a greater sense of agency and self-awareness uh, in a in an era where I was surrounded, you know, by straight people. So I was just straight washing myself without realizing what I was doing. And there's a power to that on screen to present the the true, authentic, lived lives of underrepresented groups on screen is powerful. It's meaningful. And it's also, I mean, we're not that far out of the window when it was like, oh, you're a gay actor. It's you only play gay roles. Right. You can't play anything else. And it's, you know, we're, we're still just a few years out of that mentality. It's taken a Zachary Quinto and a Neil Patrick Harris and, you know, a few people yeah. to be like, oh, look, they can play straight. And they'll be like, oh, I guess we can cast this other actor in this one-liner as a banker who's not right. dying of AIDS or a drag queen. You know, I those- binged Uncoupled so hard. That was such so a- good. Oh really my God. It was so great. I felt like, you know, I've lived in San Francisco. I just felt like every every character was like an old friend of mine. I mean, they all just felt so, so deeply real. It was gorgeous. Very well-written. Yeah. 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 I hope we just get more like that. You know, it's like fingers crossed and then the writers are out there writing these roles. And I, I know a bunch of LGBTQ writers and I would love to see it be taken more seriously in the industry instead of getting relegated to, Oh, there's not a big enough audience for this, you know, et cetera. Yeah, it's and it's crazy. Like with Pose, like I mean, that was like such a gigantic shift in how casting and and, and because it was like, oh well, and somebody said like, oh well, there was no star name in, in Pose. I'm like uh, Ryan Murphy was the star. Ryan Murphy was the star exactly. Ryan Murphy got that show made, but I mean, how many Emmys and how many Golden Globes and like all the awards, SAG awards. I mean, it was, it was so exquisite. Yeah, so it's like the 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 material is there, the, the talent is there, but it does, I mean, the casting on Pose, the, the casting of those exquisite actors, I mean, that took some time. That's digging. That wasn't your first pass on breakdown services. And again, there was a lot of trust and faith that was put into those actors and those producers. And, and it came from producers, like, uh, 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 Our Lady J. And, and uh, I mean, it, it came from the top. And I wish that we had more opportunities like that to to showcase those stories. So tell us what's next for you. What are you most excited about? Oh my God, this is going to be an interesting week coming up uh, because I'm, I'm, it's, I now know what my friends in LA when they have to come to Atlanta for like five months to shoot a project. It's like, uh, they they roll their eyes and groan on Twitter. It's like, no, that's me. I'm like, oh God, I'm going to be in LA for five months. Um, because there's a lot that you have to do, like <laughs> with your dentist and dermatologist, like all these appointments that you have to make very quickly. But I'll be in LA um, for a, at least until Christmas working on SLA, which is about the, uh, the SLA abduction of Patty Hearst. And yeah. I'm casting that. I'm also a producer on it. And then uh, Intelligent, uh, hopefully we will be able to soft prep November, December to shoot January, February 
my lead actress, who we wanted all this time, uh, she booked a series. It's a mid-season replacement that'll come out in January. So she will wrap in December as well, where she is on location. So now we can go back to her. We don't have to replace her. So hopefully all those contracts work out. And then, but then I'm, you know, I'm in LA until February, which champagne problems, but <laughs> I love the weather here in the fall and I love my walk. It's like, <laughs> Stuck in LA. No, I know. <laughs> yeah, I was, I was, I'm a surfer. I was glad to head a little bit South so I can scoot up to LA for meetings and not have to live there anymore. Yeah. I, I mean, I'm very happy that I'll be in Palm Springs. You know, Palm Springs is 90 minutes away. So. Oh, I love Palm Springs. In fact, my new feature is set there. All you <sighs> and I'm crazy about the LGBTQ scene in Palm Springs. I could have a house there and like live there half time and just yeah. I love the heat. I love the heat. I soak it up like a lizard. But it's like a, there's an energy there that's like an energy and the art and uh, yeah, the energy, the vitality. I am. Yeah, I'm excited. I have a a like a gay thriller that I've set there. That'll be totally contained in, uh, in Palm Springs. Cause I'm like, I just want to make this like really inexpensive movie there. That'll all be set there with all these fantastic characters. <laughs> well, when you get ready to shoot, let me uh, talk to me. Cause I have a company out there that's got full camera grip and electric. That will work a deal with you. Oh, I love it. Amazing. Yeah. <laughs> and some locations and stuff. I know yeah. out in Palm Springs. I think pride's in November. It's always near my birthday. Is it really? Yeah. When is it? Uh, well, I, I'm November 4th, but Palm Springs. The 12th. Oh, but hey, that's why we get along. Fellow Scorpios, right? <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. It was last year. It was like November 2nd or 3rd. Um, so yeah, we're looking at Pride being around then probably this year too. Okay. It's fun. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and on that note, Chad Darnell, where can people find you? Uh, on Instagram, uh, at Instagram and uh, Twitter, Chad Darnell, and on Facebook, uh, be Chad Darnell because they long story. Facebook, thanks. Uh, and then also my website, uh, bechaddarnell.com. Thank you for being a fantastic special guest today. Love getting to know you. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of Entertainment Business Wisdom. We invite you to subscribe so you never miss an episode. Please like, review, and share it with your friends and colleagues. Kaya Alexander can be reached on Twitter for your questions or comments at This Is Kaya. Get entertainment business career training as well as a free special report, How to Pitch Anything in One Minute, at www entertainmentbusinessleague.com. Thank you.